open your Bible up to John chapter 2, the Gospel of John chapter 2. If you are familiar with God's Word, I know that you are familiar with this passage. It'll, it will ring for you as we go through it. Verse 1, John chapter 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. <clears throat> this is the first of seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. Now, if you take all the miracles of Jesus in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, scholars would tell you that there is somewhere between 36 and 38 miracles that have been performed. But this is the first one John records. Of the seven, the last one that he records will be the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. So just seven in his book, each one of them given for two purposes, to reveal the authority of Jesus and to reveal the glory of God. That's why John recorded the seven miracles that he did. And this one, the first in John's gospel, and arguably the first in all of the gospels, is incredibly intriguing. It opens up all kinds of different questions for us, predominantly why questions. And you're going to see those as we make our way through this message today. But when I say that it is arguably the first of the miracles of Jesus, that is particularly pertinent given statements like this at the end of John's gospel. Keep your finger there in John chapter 2, but skip to the last chapter, John chapter 21, verse 25. Listen to what the apostle writes. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now here's why I say that that's incredibly pertinent. Because we believe, and based on a lot of authority, we believe that this is the first miracle Jesus ever performed. But there are a group of people that say that Jesus had performed miracles all of his life up to this point. That he was performing miracles as a child and as a teenager. So this really wasn't his first miracle. They based their teaching on a group of books called the Infancy Gospels. Here it is for you right up here. 
Oh, I guess we don't actually have that. The inf- no, yeah, we do. The infancy gospels. That's exactly how that looks. And there's a small group of books that make up that collection. However, they have been discredited for years and years and years. They've been discredited so much that they have been referred to as heresy. Within those infancy gospels, there's record of Jesus performing a number of different miracles as a child and as a teenager. So that's where that belief comes from. Yet when you look at those miracles, they make no sense in the revealing of his authority or revealing the glory of God. They don't measure up against the purpose of the miracles. Plus, they were written hundreds of years after the time of Christ. As a result of that, there's massive amounts of inconsistency within them. So let me just show you this so you understand the infancy of the infancy gospels and then can move on. This is a way to remember what they're about. The infancy gospels are a small group of writings that claim to provide details about Jesus's childhood. The Bible says little about those years other than Jesus was growing in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. In contrast, the infancy gospels contain extensive stories about a preteen Jesus and his family. The infancy gospels were written far too late to be considered authoritative. They also contain blatantly false content. That includes both factual mistakes about the region of Jerusalem and doctrinal ideas that contradict the inspired gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most of the spiritual content of these infancy gospels aligns with Gnosticism, an early heresy plaguing the church. Those immediately recognized flaws kept such works from being considered as part of the canon of Scripture. They're heresy. So if anyone brings to you a teaching that says Jesus was performing miracles as a child, you dismiss it and move on. I thought about sharing with you some of the miracles that they would claim that he had performed, but I don't want to give it any more credit than simply saying the infancy gospels are heresy. Let's just move on. In fact, let's move backwards into the miracle that we just read about because it is so intriguing so intriguing. Of the 36 to 38 miracles, we might offer that it is the most intriguing because this is how Jesus started. And in the process of it, he revealed not only his authority, but three different dimensions of who he is. That's partly why it is so intriguing. So I want to take those three dimensions this morning and look at each one of them. Because like I said, this is a really familiar account from the Gospel of John. And anybody that studied the Bible has studied it extensively. So let's look at it through a little bit of a different lens. The three dimensions of Jesus that appear in this miracle. The first one is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Jesus appears first as a guest at a wedding. He appears as a guest. Now, don't ever make the mistake of believing that Jesus was a recluse like John the Baptist. He wasn't. He never had any intentions of separating himself from people. His ministry was all about people. The reason that he came to this earth was all about 
people. So he never separated himself away from the crowds. He never separated himself away from opportunities to teach. Though there were moments where he needed some private time, for the most part, he was always with different folks. Even when he was exhausted, they were following him. When he would get in a boat and try to get across the Sea of Galilee, they would chase him over there. And Jesus would always respond to their needs. It started that way in his ministry, and it continued all the way through. Here, just take a look at the way it began. This is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. That's Jesus. Now, I love that particular story, especially because of the way my imagination goes to work on it. So he's teaching beside the Sea of Galilee, and he walks past Levi in a tax collector's booth, and he says, come follow me, and and Levi does. So in my imagination, this is the way it plays out. He says to Jesus, but hold it, I got to send an email first. So he sends an email to his boss at the IRS and says, want you to know I'm resigning effective immediately. I'm done. And then he says, hey, let me send one other email. Jesus still standing there at his booth. And, and Levi types it out and says to all of his buddies at the IRS, I'm resigning. I want you to hear it right from me. There's going to be a party at my house tonight. If you want to come over, I'll tell you why. And in his mind, he's thinking, I'll have Jesus there. So they all start firing back. Hey, party at Levi's house. This is going to be great. Let's go by and, and we'll celebrate with him because he's, he's leaving. He's going to go into a whole new life. Let's go hear what it's about. So they all show up for a backyard barbecue and Jesus is sitting there and all Levi has to say is, and that's why. And Jesus takes over and runs with it. He never, never drew away from the crowds. Even the crowds that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would look at and say, he shouldn't be with them. Jesus chose to be there for this reason. He would say in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus loved people. He loved people. So he shows up as a guest. He goes to this wedding because that's where people were at. He was there because he wanted to be. And it would become an opportunity to reveal his authority and reveal the glory of God. Though interestingly enough, he would say it came a little early. His time had not yet come, but it came a little early because of the wedding, and he capitalized on it. Now, one thing that we do have to wonder is, why was Jesus there? He had already been traveling around getting his public ministry going, so why was he there as a guest? Well, there are some different reasons. It may be that he knew these folks personally, and that's all it took. He was already on the guest list. He grew up not very far from where they lived. So they probably crossed paths and traveled in the same circles. 
But because he was an adult by this time, 30 years old, and had moved into his own life and was doing his own thing and, and traveling all over the region, it may very well be that he was there because of his mother. He was her plus one. So when he was coming back into the area, she said, hey, Jesus is going to be here in the bridegroom's family. The wedding party said, well, bring him. That'll be great. And it's possible that he was there because of Nathaniel, one of the disciples that was traveling with him at the time. Nathaniel was already counted among those that believed in him and were with him. John chapter 21, verse 2 says this, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples were together. So right there, we learned that Nathaniel was from Cana. So maybe, just maybe, Jesus was there because of Nathaniel. Could be a bit of a stretch, though. So I tend to agree with the people that say he was invited to the wedding because of his mother. That's why he was there. And that sets the stage for the second dimension that we find Jesus in in the midst of this story. Remember, he was there as a guest, but if you believe, as I do, that he was there because of his mother, it allows us to see with open eyes that the second dimension says that he was the son of Mary, and that's really important. Now, I know that you're tracking your way through this whole thing, but let me give you a little bit of background, historical background, so that it'll make more sense for you. During those days, as it is today, a wedding was a big deal in Israel. A wedding was not just a big deal, it was a huge deal. A wedding celebration lasts for at least a week, and some of them push out to 10 days, with different purposes and different parties every day. So when the family comes in, they come in early. Wedding season in Israel is the month of June. People that live in the United States will travel to Israel to be in Israel during wedding season. They want to be there and be a part of everything that is going on. It is festive. It is fun. When we went to Israel, we were there in June, and we had the privilege of going to a wedding. And I saw things that I never knew could happen during a wedding. In the United States, a wedding is a one-day event, and everything builds towards it. And it's an exciting time. We have one coming up in our family in May. My little baby daughter's... <laughs> She's getting married. Tina is in Texas right now. She is down there with her. They are dress shopping, and thankfully I got to miss out on that. There are other people from this church, Sherry and J.C. Hooten are down there, part of the dress shopping. Tina's mom came in to go dress shopping. Our sister-in-law and niece, who's one of her bridesmaids, they're there, the dress shopping. And they spent all day yesterday, I asked Katie if she was excited. On Friday, I was talking to her and she said, yep, I'm ready to say yes to the dress. <laughs> so they went out and they just had a blast. Every day, it seems like I get home from work and Tina will tell me about what she and Katie have been talking about as they're hammering away through all of the details and all I need to know is when to show up. Just tell me what time I'm supposed to be there. And it's kind of a different perspective for me through weddings as the father of the bride. Well, in Israel, it's a huge deal that isn't just one day. It's seven days, eight days, nine days, ten days. Huge party. And all of the details that are necessary 
could drown the average man. Because, you see, a wedding celebration in Israel is a declaration. It is a declaration of love. It is a declaration of standing within a community. It is a declaration of wealth. It is a declaration of many different things. So everything has to be just right. The groom's family drives most of the celebration right up to the wedding day. So all of those feasts, all of those parties, all of those meals, there has to be enough food and there has to be enough wine to keep everybody happy. Even at the wedding that we were at in Israel, the groom's father was responsible for making sure that everything was taken care of every night. And he had to make sure that there was enough wine for everybody. It was pretty funny. We were there with a group of 35 or 40 people on a tour of the Holy Lands. And so at our table, he had it set up with bottles, huge bottles of pop all up and down our table. But Shane still had to make sure there was enough wine for everybody else that was at the wedding. And had they run out, it would have been a huge embarrassment. We found out then that there's a different tier system for the meals. So he chose a kind of middle of the road tier to let everybody know that he was able to take care of this, to let everybody know that he could pay for it. He said, if you go up above that, the expenses are unbelievable in it because it's a declaration of wealth and love and concern, but it's also a proud experience. In this account in John chapter 2, if they had run out of wine, which they did, it would have been an embarrassment, a huge embarrassment. Would have been talked about for weeks, if not years to come. Hey, at such and such a wedding, you remember they, they ran out. What's that say about them? And so Mary, who was a friend of the groom's family, apparently a very close friend, because when they got in trouble, they communicated it to her. She was concerned, and she went to Jesus. And one of the why questions actually comes from him. Woman, why do you bother me with this? Why do you concern me with this? My hour has not yet come. Well, that question, it's penetrating. Why was she involving Jesus in this matter? It seems somewhat insignificant in the overall scheme of the miracles that he would perform. So why was she involving him in this? Warren Wiersbe has quite a, a unique way of approaching this. He says that the answer lies with just one word. Here it is. One word. with. That answers the question, with. Now let me show you. We're back in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. At this particular point in time, there would have been six Six of the 12 had already been recruited and they were traveling with Jesus. Now picture it this way. Mary has the invitation. She says, my son Jesus is going to be back in the area. And this wonderful family says, well, bring him with you. They were prepared for one extra person. 
but he has six with him. Mary said, but he has six of his buddies traveling with him. They were very hospitable folks, so they said, bring them along. My mother would have done the exact same thing. She had that type of hospitality running through her as long as she was alive. If she knew that there was somebody that was going to be alone or didn't have an invitation, she would do whatever necessary to make sure that they were with us. Bring them with you. So it is entirely not just possible, but probable that when Mary said, well, Jesus has six friends with him, the bridegroom's family said, there's plenty, let them come. But then on the day of the wedding, after they had been celebrating all week long, they've run out of wine. So she goes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Now, in Wearsby's approach to this, and this is a loose approach, my somewhat interpretation of what he says, he would say it sounded something like this. Woman, why are you involving me in this? And Mary says, because of your buddies. You brought six other people to the feast, and there wasn't any preparation for that. And now they're out of wine. So then when she says to the servants, do what he says and walks the other way, she's like, you take care of this. Just like a mother would. Just like a mother would. Because remember, he was there not only as a guest, but the son of Mary. Now that is a great way of looking at this whole account because it answers so many of the why questions. Why did Mary involve him? Why did he respond the way that he did? Why is it that she just walked away and we never hear anything from her again? Why is it that only the disciples believed? Why is it that after the miracle was performed, Jesus never called attention to himself publicly? Why did he allow the bridegroom's family to receive credit for the wine? Why didn't he set the master of the feast straight? See all these why questions? They get answered with that one word. I really like Wearsby's approach to it because those things start to fall into place. The problem came because there were extra people there. There were extra appetites. There were six additional folks. So now we understand. But that also helps us see that Jesus was not only there as a guest, he was not only there as the son of Mary, he was also there as the son of God. And in that dimension, he reveals his authority and he brings glory to the Lord because he was there also as the son of God. And that's the best part of this dimension. Makes you wonder when Mary said, do what he says, if she was thinking of passages like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that's having all sufficiency, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, the reason I would ask that question is I find myself wondering, based on her response in John chapter 2, in the way that she involved Jesus and then told them just do what he says, for the sake of her good friends, the groom's family, if she wasn't thinking of grace to the second power. Jesus's ability to bring grace to the second power in any situation. You might wonder what in the world I am talking about, and I'm glad you are. Let me see if I can explain it. We think of grace in the first power as the grace of salvation. 
as well we should. It is the greatest grace we will ever receive. Laid out in scripture in places like this, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is grace to the first power. That is grace to the greatest power. It is the grace of salvation. But there is a multiplication of grace in the believer's life. Don't believe me on that. You believe the Bible. This is John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. And the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That is grace to the second power. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, so that no one who has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Grace upon grace. Grace to the second power. It is evidenced in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 when we read about the fruits of the Spirit. Those are second power gifts. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Every one of those gifts of the Spirit are available to every believer because the Holy Spirit lives within us. So we have grace to the second power always available to us. And it is evidence just like that. But from time to time, when we run to the end of ourself and we have tapped all of that grace, there is still something else needed. And that's this special manifestation in the realm of grace to the second power that comes out as the miraculous, like John chapter 2. Now let me remind you that a miracle happens when God breaks through the natural barrier to accomplish the supernatural that his glory might be revealed. And in the process of that miracle, needs get met. That's the way that works. When God breaks through the natural barrier to perform the supernatural so that his glory will be revealed and needs get met. That's miraculous. And it happens in grace to the second power events. That's what this was. That's what this was. And how amazing was it? Jesus recognizes that his disciples could have possibly caused this problem, so he covers them. He covers them. He does the same thing for us. He covers us. He understands the embarrassment that this family may be facing, and he knows it's important to his mother, so he covers it. Jesus does it in the miraculous. And he never calls attention to himself within it because of those other people. To call attention to himself would have shown a light on the disciples' situation. It would have shown a light on the host situation. So Jesus, in the miraculous grace of the second power, steps back but gives them everything that they need, all sufficient grace to get through this situation. He does the same thing for us. He does the same thing for us. I like the way, I believe his name is John Bloom. I just lost it. I like the way John Bloom captures this idea. 
when you run out of wine today, when you fail in wisdom, power, or resources, or fail to meet the righteous requirements of God's law, or fail to love the Lord with all your heart, you need not fear. Jesus, your Lord, your groom, the master of the great wedding feast, has infinite power and infinite love and is able to make all grace abound so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you abound in every good work. Grace to the second power. Grace to the second power. It's pretty cool. And the Lord does the miraculous for us when we need it. But before that, he has given us everything that we need, love, joy, peace, patience, so on, so that we can try to make our way through it. But if we need him, he's there in the second power. Now back in John chapter 2, not only do we find second power grace, but we find a third day miracle. Let me show you again what I'm talking about. Verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. I love that subtle little implication that John puts in there, because he may very well be talking about the resurrection, or allowing us to see it ahead of time. Later on in John chapter 2, Jesus will make reference to it, when he says, tear down this temple, and three days later, I'll build it back up. In the same chapter, we get third-day references twice. And so now, John calls out that on the third day, this is what happens. On the third day, grace gets revealed. On the third day, we get to see Jesus for who he is. Keep that in mind, folks. That's what John's saying. Keep that in mind, because that third day, it's going to matter. It's going to matter. On the third day, Jesus is going to do something pretty special. And if that's true, then what happens in this first miracle makes perfect sense to us because Jesus takes care of people's thirst. In Revelation chapter 22, we find this great teaching. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Wouldn't it make sense that Jesus' first miracle dealt with thirst? And the last words of Jesus would remind us that when we are thirsty, we need to come to him because there is grace upon grace available to us. Now, I like the fact that water gets called out in this particular passage because as I studied it out this week, I found out that there's three different ways that Jesus takes care of our thirst. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, the very first part of that verse reads like this. Come, everyone who thirst. But now watch what happens as the entire verse is put up there for you. Come, everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Did you catch all three of them? It begins with water, but then these two get added to it milk, and wine. When Jesus is taking care of the thirst of his children, he does so with water, milk, and wine. As you go through scripture, you're going to find out that water always symbolizes life. It always symbolizes life, just like this passage, John chapter 4. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So that is the first drink that Jesus gives us. And it is the first act of grace that leads to eternal life. Drink of the living water and you will receive it. So Isaiah says, if you're thirsty, you come and you drink of the water unto life. But then in grace to the second power, he gives us a couple other things like milk. Milk is always used to symbolize strength, growing in the Lord. Peter actually helps us understand that. Take a look. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So once you've filled yourself up on the water of grace that leads to eternal life, start drinking pure spiritual milk so that you grow up in the Lord. And then you find yourself at a place where you can drink the wine of joy. Now, let me explain that real quick. As you go through scripture, you're going to find out that wine is used to symbolize a number of different things. The most prevalent one in the New Testament, wine is used to symbolize the judgment of God. But in the Old Testament, we find wine symbolizing joy. Nehemiah understood that when he wrote these words. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So we start with water and we drink milk right after that to grow strong, to get to the point where we can drink the wine of joy with the Lord. That's the process of becoming a child of God and a mature one at that. This first miracle of Jesus, it was never random. It was never random. It helps us understand grace to the first power that saves. Just ask the disciples. After they saw what happened, the Bible says they believed. They believed and their lives were changed. And then it helps us understand what it means to grow up in the Lord, to get to the place where we can know joy. And that joy is fulfilled at the marriage supper of the Lamb, a wedding feast. This miracle was so symbolic, it will blow your mind if you really get into it and start digging because it happened on the third day. It happened on the third day, which was our invitation to the wedding feast. The third day, all of those invitations were dropped in the mail by the Lord for each one of us. I love this miracle. I hope you do too. If you find yourself in a place where you need some grace to the second power, maybe you find yourself in a place where you need it to the first power, but right now I want to talk especially to those that are dealing with some different things that you need grace to the second power all-sufficient grace to deal with whatever it is you're dealing with. That's what Ray was praying about earlier. Or Steve was praying about. Ray was talking about folks that are in need of some second power grace. If you find yourself in one of those situations, we want you to know that this invitation is for you. This message is for you. You come to Jesus and you trust him for grace to the second power. And if you need the miracle of it, you trust that he cares so much about you that he's paying attention to your situation. You ask him for the miracle of healing, of forgiveness, 
of redemption, of restoration, of a fresh beginning. New wine. New wine, the best wine. You ask him for that. And then you trust him for it. Just like Mary did. You ask him for it. And you trust him for it.